All right, welcome to another episode of the Speech Entropy Podcast today with Jeffrey Kedis. Hey, Jeff, how are you doing? Great, thanks for having me. Yes, you are a very interesting person. I already told you this uh, prior to actually pressing recording, and uh, there's a lot that we can talk about this. And um, I, I actually discovered you by uh, talking to Michael Snyder, and he basically uh, referring you onto this podcast. And um, yeah, we, we, I mean, we talk to a lot of people from different types of backgrounds, right? So we also talk to entrepreneurs, but also people from the academic field, people that are more or less in the managerial uh, positions. But uh, you actually have done some very incredible work, but I want to give you the stage basically to tell us all about that. So, you know, we, as, as, as always, we start the same way would be great if you could kind of, you know, give us a little bit of a background, where you're coming from, you know, what are kind of the, what is the storyline here, different, uh, the different stages in your uh, career and how you ended up where you are today? Yeah, um, it's, it's, a, it's not a, I don't know that it's that great of a story. It's probably pretty common. I think um, I was a, a big science fiction um, and astrophysics nerd in, in high school. Um, just kind of read at least a book a week, you know, everything from Carl Sagan, Isaac Asimov, all the, all the, um, Frederick Pohl. And um, I also, at the same time, my, my dad, who was, uh, worked at Intel, uh, and so was somewhat, you know, aware of the tech scene. Um, I think I was a junior, senior in high school, I stumbled upon a book uh, called The New New Thing, um, and uh, which is a great book if you haven't read it. It was really about the rise, it's about basically about Jim Clark, and to some extent, Mark Andreessen and the rise of Netscape and then some other things. But um, I, I read that book and I was like, okay, I'm going to start companies. I was like, I thought it was the, the coolest thing ever um, um, to just say, you know, and the more I read about the history of Silicon Valley, the more I was kind of fascinated by this just place where crazy ideas were born and people went to meet people who wanted to try to do really hard things. And I kind of knew that that was ultimately what I wanted to do. I didn't really know anything more than that. Um, I ended up going to school in Pittsburgh at Carnegie Mellon. Um, again, didn't have any idea of how to become an entrepreneur um, and uh, didn't have a family really of entrepreneurs or anything like that. And and I so I studied physics, I actually started in astrophysics because I just thought it was cool. And I was like, figure it's the most general thing I can do is if I want to build stuff, understanding the way the world works is a good place to start. Uh, while I was there, I, I fell in love with also computer science, which I felt was like the complement to physics where it's kind of understanding the rules of information in like the virtual world. Um, and whereas physics is more about understanding the rules of the physical world. And, I, and um, so it was kind of haphazard, but it just kind of, and then I got to the end of my undergrad school after I got, I got a degree in bachelor, bachelor's of science in computer science and bachelor's of science in physics, the focus on quantum. And I um, didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know if I was a company I wanted to start the bubble, the dot-com bubble had just blown up a couple of years prior. Um, all my friends were getting jobs at places like Oracle or actually Google pre-IPO. And none of that stuff sounded really exciting to me. So I ended up taking a job um, in kind of at uh, Lincoln Labs at MIT working on a um, a project um, that I didn't even know what it was actually when um, they recruited me for it because I was working in like this, this underground Air Force base. Um, but part of the deal was that they'd pay for me to go to grad school at MIT. So I figured, hey, that sounds good. Um, ended up being related to actually rockets, which was kind of cool. But um, I didn't last very long there. I learned that, you know, working in an underground Air Force base was not really, it was like the farthest thing you could do from being an entrepreneur. Um, got a call from a friend who had just graduated from a, with a degree in ECE, um, master's degree, said, I'm going to go move into San Jose to start a company, need a software engineer, you want to come? And so I kind of put in my two weeks and drove across the country and we started a company that ended up being in like a, um, it was really, it was really interesting at, at the time, uh, very interesting technically. Um, this company's still around, it's called CPacket Networks, um, networking hardware and software kind of monitoring and so it started out as security actually it was originally called cryptoware labs but um it was really fun really interesting um anyways everything i've done has been there really hasn't been a big plan um you know it was it was just kind of following what was interesting um i think 
because I, I, you know, like I said, it's, I could talk forever about all the different um, kind of companies been involved with the big five and um, that I've started. And then six, if you account one that I joined pretty early that became the first like mobile gaming company started by a bunch of EA execs, um, um, which was really, which was really cool. It was like the first time I worked really closely with a, a CEO and Neil is a, just like a pretty inspiring leader and like probably the best CEO I've ever worked for or with. Um, and um, so I learned a lot there, even though I wasn't a founder, but it was good to see like a, what a relatively large exit looks like um, and see what it takes to build a team and a culture that is successful. And that was great. And then, um, you know, and then it was all, it was all, you know, it was all haphazard. Then I was really big into triathlons and riding my bike. And as a result of that, I met this guy named Max, who I had really didn't know who he was. We just, I just knew he was kind of a nerd like me because we talked about things. And I think a few months after I met him, um, we were on a bike ride uh, in Marin and he kind of said, what do you do? You know, you're clearly in tech and told them, was kind of an entrepreneur or aspiring entrepreneur and he's like oh me too and he's like he's in and he's like well, what companies have you started and I was like nothing you've ever heard of small like I kind of listed off the things that I'd done and no companies that failed but nothing like massive exits or anything like that um and uh and I was like what about you and he was like oh what, PayPal and I was like oh it's like okay I think I know this Max guy but it was but it's that's really, really the way it started it was it was no I um, mean he was really friendly and just kind of off, he's like, if you ever want an introduction to investors or anything like that, let me know. But, um, but at the time it was like, I've known, I, the context for knowing this guy was we like to ride bikes and I didn't want to like leverage that to like ask for like favors or anything. So, and I also kind of assumed that he's, you know, he, something like Max gets asked so much for things. So it's like, let's just keep it as friends and riding bikes. But you know, a few years later we stayed in touch, we rode bikes and he said, Hey, I'm going to, thinking about starting um, this little lab, um, leaving Google. Um, I was just part of a company that got acquired by a big public company. Um, and we started, he's like, will you help me evaluate um, companies for angel investments? And then while you're thinking about what you're gonna do next, and, and, and I'd be happy to like invest. And this little incubator that he built called HVF, was like when we, um, you know, the first few times we met, he didn't even have office space yet. He just came over to my apartment and we talked about the kinds of spaces that we're interested in. Um, and we were pretty aligned. We, I think we were both very interested in healthcare, um, finance. He was also very interested in the patent system and how to disrupt that. But I just, as a government, I was like, I don't know where to start there. But that's kind of how like Glow and Affirm started is like, what are the, how do you disrupt, um, how, like how do you start to disrupt healthcare and, and finance, consumer finance? Um, and, um, and, and I think that was, a, that was a, like a big, um, and then, you know, so me, and I, so then I called my friend who, um, I went to school with and said, Hey, I'm going to start this company. Max is going to invest, come help me build a prototype. Then Max invested invent, invent, invested and he introduced me to more people in his network. Um, specifically Nathan Geddings, who then decided he was going to join. And we started getting momentum. And then, you know, I turned around and I said, hey, Max, why don't you just become the CEO? Because um, at the time I was kind of running it. And, um, and he eventually said yes. And I think that was a bit like just, you know, that helped getting, having somebody who was, had been there and done it and kind of coached me through and explained how, the thing, how things worked um, was huge in terms of my confidence, but also, um, just learning. And so I think that that was, I was really fortunate, um, that that happened. And, um, uh, but, but again, like, I think my only advice if you're an entrepreneur is like, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure if they're made or born. Like it's, I just can't, I can't imagine not, um, starting things or building new things. Uh, I, like I, I can't like imagine being happy doing something different. So, um, but I, so it was never, I think there's like, oh, this whole question of, of like, should I start or something? It's like, if, if you, if you're questioning it, you probably aren't. It's like, it's more like if you, if you, if you feel like you can't be happy, if you don't, then you're probably an entrepreneur and that's, and then you don't have to worry about quitting or all that thing. Cause it's just not an option. It's like, what else are you going to do? It's like, unless you're ready to retire, it's like, 
something fails, you just start something else. It's like, what, like that's just, it just, you know. Um, and so, you know, I think that was, that was pretty neat to meet a lot more people that were like that. And certainly Max was like that, um, where it was like, no idea was too crazy to consider. Yeah, I mean, you know, you're you're spe you're speaking right right out of my heart. You know, like uh, I had these conversations so many times, and I also I'm absolutely convinced that you know, you know that you are an entrepreneur. That if if that's the only thing that is an option to you, so like I, you know, if if that that's what you're thinking of, you know, like you you don't even think of it, you just do it, you know like because there's a lot of there and we've we've gotten to that culture where you know it's kind of like a glorification of that you know and obviously everybody wants to be that cool entrepreneur that is you know self um self-sufficient self-sustained whatever you know and is independent and there's all these things that you can associate to it but you know that's not what it is you know because no i, I can't I, i mean it's been amazing to see that transformation honestly because I can't tell you how many people when I left grad school at MIT um, or turned down jobs at, at some big kind of huge tech companies, you know, my parents too, like they're like, you're throwing away your career, like go get experience, then go get an MBA. Like, dude, this is the career path that just guarantees success. And I was like, success on what, by what definition? Um, but it was not cool. It was not cool. I was crazy. Like, and this is, you know, in like 2003 or 2004 to say I'm, gonna forgo like you know what then coming out of school like a six-figure job was crazy i know like this you know these, these kids coming out now and like commanding huge salaries it's like I, i'm my first few jobs that we paid ourselves when you knew when you divided our salary by the number of hours we were working we would have made more money working at mcdonald's for sure 100 percent um it wasn't cool you did it because you wanted to not because like you knew that there was very small chance that you were gonna make a ton of money it was just like But you were, you know, you were, you didn't need money. We didn't need money because we were so busy working. It was, it was just, you know, like, what were you going to spend it on? You were just, you're, you're coding all the time. Like you didn't, you just needed to eat in a place to sleep. So, um, but, but, you know, like, yeah, I, it really just wasn't cool. It's been, it's just glorified now by the movies and like obviously Zuckerberg's uh, success, like, like social media has just created these massive personalities and, um, You know, I think the biggest thing and which people know how to leverage very well, but I think the biggest change is, you know, there's this culture of you can almost manifest destiny, like success as an opportunity now, like you can almost, you know, if, um, which wasn't true 20 years ago, or 15 to 20 years ago, um, because if you, there's this kind of, if you, people think you're a great opportunity entrepreneur, it'll attract more money, it'll attract more talent you're more likely to have success. Like you don't even actually have to have done anything. Uh, you don't have to have any results, which is, which sometimes works great. And it's just, a, it's just a different thing, but that wasn't, these platforms didn't exist to create, um, you know, these kind of myths, like founder myths that yeah. could spread so easily and create FOMO the way it can today in investors' hearts. <laughs> and, um, And that's really the, the difference. And there's, and, there's, and there's good parts of it too. Like actually, you know, a lot of people talk about like the PayPal guys as, you know, being kind of the center of all of this wealth creation. And that's actually, that's absolutely true. But the biggest thing, I think the biggest contribution from my perspective is that they represented the shift in power from VCs to entrepreneurs in the sense that there was a group of guys that were so successful that they could start financing their own companies and their friends' companies and give kind of more fair terms. I think that was kind of part of the, the beginning of the death of the liquidation preference, right? Which is not really fair for an entrepreneur, honestly. Um, and, and so to me, that's the biggest um, contribution that that group of folks made was, was taking away power from VCs because individuals became, you know, have, uh, able to finance their own or friends things. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's always good and, and bad things that come that come with 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 such a shift. Right. And, and the, the good things you just mentioned them and the bad things are, are the, you know, are the things that we mentioned prior to that is, is basically, you know, once there is success in something and once that success is made, you know, being made visible, you know, 
there's a lot of people that jump on that bandwagon, right? And then you, and then you have things that that evolve into a certain direction that might not be as 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 good, uh, you know, or or healthy for for the for the entire ecosystem uh, in itself, right? But um, you mentioned something very interesting, and that is, um, you said, I didn't really have a plan, and things just happened, you know. And um, I mean, there's this notion of and, and that's, a, I mean, you know, I don't probably every, everybody that every entrepreneur that, uh, that you talk to is, is, is saying that is basically saying that, you know, there's this notion of luck and the importance of luck. Right. But, uh, what I would like to, what I would like to talk uh, about with you is, is basically how do you, how do you justify randomness? Right. Like if you say like, I didn't have a plan. What do you, how do you, because the thing is you know if I also personally if I look at if I look at my life or if I look at other people which I would define by my by the metrics that I define mm -hmm. success right I, if um, as successful I look back at their lives and it seems as kind of you know kind of like a it there's it it it, it can always uh, it can almost not be randomness because it, it just looks like it's supposed to be happening like it's supposed to happen yeah well i think i think there's like something to be said with the cliches like kind of you make your own luck it's luck is certainly a huge thing but like if i mean if you want to try and quantify it i look at it like this and this is this applies to actually i think startups entire companies as well as if luck if you can model luck as once a day you roll the dice and potentially something game-changing like some huge opportunity presents itself to you that basically means the longer you're alive you know whether it's a, a company or you're trying to do something the better the chances are is like you you know hitting the jackpot on that role on that day so i think it's you know whereas um I, 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 so i think about it like that so i think making your own luck it really is just about surviving and not giving up and then knowing when, you know, it's, it's it almost reminds me of running backs in the NFL. It's like being patient enough to see the hole in the line and then hit it as hard as you can and be in a position where your life is that when you see that hole, you can hit it with everything you have. Like, and it's like, if you have to not sleep for a few days to get through that hole, you do. So it's almost like, like being an entrepreneur to me, I think is more about, um, you know, surviving long enough to see the holes and setting yourself up to take advantage of the holes when they present themselves um, and um, more than anything else. So that, I think that's how you kind of create your own luck is you have to and um, be so committed to something that you're willing to wait until and believe in this vision that the opportunity is going to exist. And if you just place yourself in the right position and time it, like you can't time something. So you kind of have to exist long enough for the opportunity to present itself. Um, and so when, when you see people, you talk about people saying like, you don't want to build a product for today. You want to build it for three years out. I think a big part, like there's a, there's a little bit of a relationship there, which is like, if you see the world, what direction it's going in, you say, well, I don't know if this is going to happen in next year or in 10 years, but I do know that if I put my in a position to be ready when the world does make that shift and I can go all in when that happens, like that's making luck. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's so patient basically. Right. So being patient enough that if, if something like, and I, I guess that's, how, so that's it's funny you say patience because I'm the, probably the least patient person I know. I, it's more about like, it's more of a, I'm have maybe somewhat of an OCD personality about specific ideas that I just become obsessed with having to make real. Right. And um, where it's like, you can't, you think about it when you're in the shower, you think about it when you wake up, you, you think about it in your dreams, like, and just being, and that's what creates the patience is being like, so sure that this has to happen. Um, and it's the right thing to do that you're willing to suffer through whatever is in between. And, and, and suffering also sometimes means, right? which is, and yeah, like you call it patience. I call it suffering. Yeah, and exactly. So um, why I mentioned that is, I mean, you know, saying basically, you know, being patient, uh, kind of as a, you know, as, as something that is, is, is important for, for, for people that, are, that want to create things, you know, that's exactly how, how you said it, right? It's suffering. And, and I can relate to that as well. And I, 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 if I see other people, you know, that 
oftentimes it's like that, you know, you, you work on ideas and, you know, how many ideas have you thought about, right? Or how many ideas have you worked on and they actually didn't work out or something just like, you know, it takes such a long time for it to develop or sometimes it's just like, you know, this, this, this piece to the puzzle is missing and it's not popping up, you know, and you basically continue to grind and to grind and to grind to basically be ready once you see like, okay, I need to jump in right now. Mm-hmm. so yeah. it's, absolutely so suffering is is, is 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 and yeah and like and i think like one of the things i think of, of entrepreneurs you kind of have to have a, a short um memory for pain right you have to like you, <laughs> even even the companies that are successful they're, they're they could be there could be just traumatizing experiences you have where you're like you know you haven't slept for days and you know something's going wrong in a product and a partner you're gonna you're afraid you're gonna lose and you need that partner in order to convince your investors that you're ready for the next step. It's just, it just kind of everything feels like it's starting to unravel, but you make it through. And then the minute you make it through, you forget any of the pain, right? And so it's like you have this very limited uh, memory of, of, the, of the tough times. And, and so I think, I think the most, I think the thing that is really important to me though, is what makes um, that's kind of, let's say suffering um, manageable really is like the people Kind of with you on the journey right yeah. and um because no matter how successful you are you can have a company you know ipo whatever it is it's kind of anticlimactic because by the time you get to an ipo you knew it was coming a long time ago it's it's um it's the in t- between times where there's you're kind of in this quantum superposition constantly in a startup of success and failure like on, on any given day you think everything's great and the next day you think everything's terrible right like that's just so you kind of you have to just kind of stay even like and um or try to as much as possible because it is this like superposition of states kind of constantly um but like the, the relationships you know obviously in those kind of pressure cookers like um relationships can go bad but also like amazing relationships are created uh, and i think kind of similar to what it's like to kind of make a friend in a foxhole it's like when you have suffered with somebody and, and survived something it's it's it creates um you know friendships that i think last last a really long time because you could because you know you'll all you'll meet up with those people and you'll reminisce about remember that time when you know we you know thought we'd lost 10 million dollars like overnight and we it, you know it was just like crazy yeah. so um so yeah i think that 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 to me is i think what makes me keep coming back for more is is just wanting to it's that feeling of creation where you are with a group of people it's late at night and you finally get something working whether you're a software engineer hardware engineer you hit compile whatever it is and all of a sudden everything works and you're sitting there watching this thing go and no one else in the world has ever seen this happen before and in your head you can trace all the steps from beginning to end of how this thing works but it doesn't make it any less magical um and um and it's that moment where you can look around and say hey like no one's done no one's seen this before this is new like this is and that's, I mean, I think that's the most exciting part of it. Yeah, absolutely. So, you, you, you know, you mentioned, one, you know, one day can go great, the other day can go bad, you know. So I think the one, one question that needs to be asked definitely is, you know, directed maybe to you on how you deal with it. You know, obviously balance is kind of a key, key, key component in this, right? So like balance in the sense of how do you balance extremes, right? So... Oh. I was gonna. I thought I thought you were talking about something else, but like I'm not um, talking about work life balance. <laughs> talking about the balance between basically these good and bad days, right? Because mm-hmm. without, uh, you know, getting mentally broken. Um, like I said, it's like a short memory. It's like it's like, and you're so obsessed with the end. Um, it's it's a little bit of a contradiction, right? Because I'm saying like, the most satisfying parts are the parts in the middle with like the people, but also it's like a it's an obsession with what you're where you're trying to get to no you know and um and i think you know you just have to remind yourself and i try and remind you you know our team it's like we know what we're doing we know we think we believe we're doing the right thing and have the right intentions and want to do it um like there's gonna be people who write bad things there's gonna be people who write good things it's best to just ignore all of it honestly and just stay focused on what we're trying to do and constantly evaluate are we doing the right thing for our customers or partners? Is this the way, you know, um, things should work? Is this, 
and, and just be kind of honest with ourselves and focus on that kind of internal uh, drive and not get wrapped up in, you know, the kind of celebrification, if you will, or the, yeah. of, of being an entrepreneur, um, you know, and, um, and I think that's, I think that's kind of, uh, I think that's kind of the key because, yeah. you know, it's, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's really, I, I think it is, it's scary as an entrepreneur, it's scary to put something out, put so much time into something, put it out there to the world and hear what people have to say. And I think it's probably pretty similar to um, an artist putting out music and then getting bad reviews. Yeah, yeah. It's like a pretty similar thing. Um, and so I think when I hear, when I hear artists talk about like, you know, they made this album and it wasn't critically acclaimed, but it was the thing they're most proud of. I can really identify um, with that kind of feeling. Yeah, absolutely. So let's, you know, before we dive into uh, what you're doing today, uh, you know, I want to, I want to still dive a little bit more deeper into your time um, with, with a firm and building out a firm and, 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 you know, the early days kind of, you know, how, what is, you know, maybe kind of the, the, you already told us kind of the, the, you know, the early, the early days when you, you, when you met Max, you know, and kind of uh, your conversation with him, et cetera, getting to know him. But, uh, you know, tell us a little bit more about the early days and, yeah. and, and, and kind of, you know, some, some of the highlights that you, you would like to mention from, from that journey. Yeah. I mean, it was, um, it was, it was funny. So I, actually the original idea for a firm was a guy named Alex Rempels. And it wasn't what a firm is today. Um, it was, uh, but Alex, he, who's now a, a general partner at Andreessen Hurwitz and a good, good friend still. Um, but he, he saw an opportunity, he was, he was running a company called Trial Pay and saw an opportunity to increase or decrease the friction in mobile commerce. And you have to remember that this is before every browser like Apple Wallet or every browser had autofill the way it does on a desktop and, and mobile browsers. Um, and so what was clear was that everybody was always logged into Facebook. And so he kind of conjectured and actually he built this like little PHP prototype that he didn't quite get working, but to be fair, um, he, you know, he was also the CEO of, of, of a company at the time. So I don't know even know how he had time to do this, but, um, but his kind of conjecture was that if you could use somebody's Facebook identity to underwrite a transaction and everybody's already logged into Facebook, you could put kind of the Amazon single click buy on almost most websites via, like using Facebook identity. And so we looked at like the, the terms first and this is when um, Max introduced me to Alex and said, hey, my friend Alex has an interesting idea. Cause I was still like, wasn't sure what the next company was. I was just helping Max do some diligence. I knew I didn't, you know, the thought of being an angel investor, honestly, like sounded sexy when I met Max and he was like, oh, but then you hear a bunch of pitches and you're like, I want to go do something. I don't want to listen to other people talk about what they want to do because the reality is, you know, there's the majority of things you hear are, you might not think they're that interesting. Um, or um, so, yeah, so uh, that was an interesting experience for me. But, um, but yeah, so, so I, I called up my friend Manny Arias, who, one of my best friends, went to college together. We'd almost did every school project together at CMU. Like we wrote an operating system, we wrote a networking stack, we wrote a file system. We did, um, we did a lot of coding. And then he actually joined right out of college, the first company that I helped start, um, CPAC, he was the first employee. Um, and, um, and he was actually also the first, I mean, he was like the founding engineer um, and it was just me and him. Um, and we built this prototype. Um, and this was even what, like me and him, he wasn't working, I wasn't working. We weren't employees of HPF or anything. We were just hanging out. We approached on our laptops, like this, uh, you know, Alex's idea and show that it could work. And we showed it to Alex and Max and, um, and, and you know, and we were like, this is a thing. And, and we got excited about it because in the process of building that first prototype, we realized that the real opportunity and what we had built in this one weekend was to build a alternative underwriting for, people who might not have good credit scores or that. And um, in the process of doing it, we kind of really evaluated how broken our, the American credit system was. And said, you know, and, and so it was kind of, it was almost like a
sorry, I just got uh, my phone just interrupted, but um, um, and um, the uh, let's see, where was I? So yeah, we were like, you know, this is really interesting. Um, we should we should make a go of this, and so me and Manny just kept working on it, um, and then we, we built something that actually could be integrated with the real merchant. Um, and then, um, you know, when we got that far, Max kind of helped us put together a seed round with his friends. Um, and we integrated with the first merchant, which is 1-800 Flowers. And he introduced, and along the way also, like there was some key people that came on um, besides me and Manny full, full time. Like, first of all, I think the, the, game, the game changing moment to me at least was uh, when we started, when I started working on the risk models, it was just me and Manny. And he said, I have a guy that you should talk to um, who helped me at PayPal, um, who, um, and I didn't, you know, who, his name's Nathan, turned out to be Nathan Geddings, who was um, one of the co-founders of Palantir. Um, and he's like, he's gonna come in and talk to you a little bit and tell you about, um, you know, how, what we did at PayPal for like fraud stuff. And, and so it was, I was actually, I had broken my ankle recently, so I was in a wheelchair. And so I remember when he came in, another company that had just been kind of parked and hanging out that Max recently invested in was the Sif Science guys, like Jason and Brandon, and um, really good guys who actually Sif Science just raised a nice rounded billion dollar valuation. Um, so it was funny because we were kind of born together, the firm and Sif Science in the same room. Um, but um, the, uh, let's see, the, so Nathan came in and he's a fraud guy. Um, and, you know, and, and all the Sif Science guys like run up to him like, oh, Nathan, Nathan, like, he's like, I was like, who is this guy? He's like some kind of celebrity. And I, and I was a little bit embarrassed because I didn't know who he was. And then like, oh, this is the guy you're supposed to talk to. And I kind of wheeled into this conference room and we talked. It was like three or four in the afternoon. Um, and we ended up not leaving the room till like 11 at night, just talking about what the opportunities were in terms of modeling and underwriting and how. Um, and uh, I think I got... I think me and Manny like pulled a, like an all nighter that night working. And at about five in the morning, I got an email from Max forwarded from Nathan that said, um, like, and, and I forget what, I, I don't, the exact details was something to the effect of Max saying, what the hell did you and Nathan talk about? And I like read, scrolled down the email and it was Nathan saying, Hey, I'm thinking about leaving Palantir. Um, do you think those guys would be interested in like having me, kind of joined this project. Um, and um, and I just was, I just turned to Manny because we were, I was like, whoa, this is crazy. Um, this, you know, this guy's obviously a very successful entrepreneur running, he's the CTO of a massive company. Um, and um, the fact that he's like, wants to join me and Manny was, was crazy to us. But I, th th that was a game changing moment to me. And, and then he, he he kind of did this kind of six month transition where he came and worked with us one day a week for one month. Then Nathan's extremely methodical. So we had this like whole roadmap for how he transitioned from one day a week to five days a week with us. Um, and obviously he had to like wind, unwind a massive role at Palantir. But then the other, that was big. And then the other big, um, big hire was um, Brad Selby, who was our first product guy who was really the, who was the first guy that really pulled a lot of all-nighters with me and Manny getting our first product up in merchant integration, who was Jack Selby's um, younger brother, um, really smart guy, like played football at Stanford, also was like, um, went to Oxford, like he's like a Rhodes Scholar, like he's, you know, one of those just people are just good at everything. Um, and, um, and uh, yeah, so that was like the other, you know, other, and so, that was the original kind of group. And that's when I started planting the seed in, in um, Max's mind that he doesn't really want to just be an investor. He wanted to be an operator um, and kind of pushing him, pushing him there. And it kind of got to a point where I was like, look, either you're the CEO or I'm the CEO. And, and, and I actually told him, I was like, and I don't think I'm ready to be CEO. So, but I'm not really going to accept another one. So, um, and uh, so I, and I'm sure it wasn't just me. I'm sure there's other factors. Like, I, you know, I highly doubt he would have taken that risk if like Nathan and, and wasn't involved and stuff like that. But, but um, that's, that's pretty much the way, um, that's the way it happened. That's, you know, that's, that's, that's incredible. You know, I, I, 
you know that's maybe also a moment when you when you know for especially for you i guess you know when you realize you know you're this early on you, you you're this early in and then basically a guy like you know like nathan for example um saying like hey you know i'm i'm i'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna jump in as well right i'm i'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna be part of uh, part of this and 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 you know you guys not even having as as far as i understood right not not having a prototype yet right you just had that conversation with them we had a we had a prototype um we were, we were trying to build the first thing that you could actually integrate with a merchant but right. and trying to understand that and that's but uh but yeah no it was like i mean that was when i mean i remember um you know i think me and manny kind of looked at each other and i think we were both kind of motivated us and struck a little bit of fear because it was like okay this is this is the big leagues. Like, are we up to the challenge? Cause yeah. we'd always talked about in school, like starting companies and all this stuff and um, as partners in all of our classes and, and, but, um, but I think this, that we were then like, okay, like these guys are the best. So like, can we hang, can we hang here? And, and I think that just kind of lit a fire under us and, and. Um, all right. You know, let's uh, maybe just to finish, finish that chapter up, you know, because there's obviously so many things that, that you could share with us here, you know, but what I would like to know from you, you know, because obviously that, you know, looking back at the story then on how this all evolved, it was a huge success, right? I want to, I want to ask you, how was that feeling for the, when you, for the first time realized, okay, you know, what winning feels like? In a sense that, but that's but that's the i think that's the i think that's the that's the dilemma is i still don't feel that like um you know i feel like i look at it and i'm like oh we should have done more we could have done more we didn't take advantage, full advantage of the opportunity we didn't move fast enough couldn't bigger could it like um and so i think that's like fundamentally just built into me it's like i don't look at always uh, what we've accomplished i look at what we didn't and how much more there is to do and that just keeps me keeps me going so and um and that's kind of what i said is like success isn't it's anticlimactic usually and then um the success that most people talk about is you know in terms of like fame or money but if you're obsessed with actually the pro the thing that you're building and you want to make it perfect or better or you see a way to make it better like that the rest of it is noise it, it doesn't feel um like even, even a company going public to me is just a stepping stone. It's saying, it's, it's a form of fundraising. You're basically saying, okay, we want to do these things. We want the company to have the capability to expand in these ways. We need money to fuel that mission. It's not the end, it's, it's a stepping stone. It's like, you're, you're never done. And, um, or it doesn't feel like you can ever be done um, in a lot of these ways. You can always do it better. You can always make it better always make it cheaper, faster. And, um, and so I think that is almost potentially the tragedy of being an entrepreneur if you're, when you're obsessed with the thing is um, you can overlook the success because you're just thinking about the next improvement you can make. Yeah, it, it is a, it is a, a strategy uh, on the personal level, on the individual level, but it is uh, basically, you know, a necessity for, the ecosystem and for you know entrepreneurship in, in general right because because of that you know you keep going and because of that people who have been successful once you know they keep going and, and, yeah. and are building well i think the things that the biggest things that i've learned about it though about being entrepreneurs like there's a couple of things one is that I, and i see more and more is like the idea of kind of um because i think that that's when you know capitalism can kind of go wrong is is kind of people thinking about the impact that if they are successful, what will this do to, how will this impact everybody or our environment or the world, you know? And is this a good, is that a good thing or a bad thing if I bring the thing that I'm imagining to life? Um, the other thing um, is I feel like, um, I feel almost a, um, a responsibility as like somebody who's had some success as an entrepreneur to focus on problems um, that take huge amounts of time and investment because specifically because so much of the world is focused on today, right? If you have a family, you have to make sure you have food on the table, you have to pay the rent. And so you have this very short horizon of what you can worry about. 
as soon as you get, you know, have a little bit of success, you can say, okay, well, I don't need to, you know, however you market, I think about it in terms of time. Maybe you don't need to worry about paying the rent for 10 years. I look at that as a runway. I say, okay, that means that I have, I can spend the next 10 years of my life thinking about how to make the world better in 10 years um, because I have that luxury. And if the people who have the luxury of time don't do that, who is? Because you can't blame the person who's working three jobs, you know, has kids, has medical bills. Yeah, yeah. Can't blame them for saying not trying to fix the problems in the world. Because what would you do in their situation if you had to feed your kids? It's like you can't worry about everybody else. You can't try and, and, and improve, like fix the system. So um, I think that is, um, and I think I see I see more and more of that, um, and I think the you know as entrepreneur like there was a lot i think there was a land grab on the internet there still is to some extent so it was like how does internet change businesses how does data change business and there's a little bit of land grab and there's huge opportunities and you have companies like facebook but now that those opportunities are coming farther and fewer between i think people are looking back and saying okay well let's look at the physical world there's a lot harder problems yeah. the return on the investments might not be as big so it's maybe worse for venture capitalists um, or, or investors, but like the impact is bigger. Like, you know, you, you know, like obviously people made a ton of money on Facebook. Did it make the world a better place? I don't know. No. Right. Like, um, but I think that there's all, all, all kinds of entrepreneurs doing, I think working in energy and transportation and health and like in, in biology, biology. Um, and you know, those are super hard problems and it's, uh, it's tough because I see so much capital going to things that I think, you know, the only thing you can hope to do is make money from these things. It's not going to make the world better. Um, but there's a lot of money to be made there. So you can't also blame investors for going there. Um, but when I look at how much money we spend on some things, um, and, and, I, and I don't want to call any specific companies by, by name because, you know, who knows what they actually have planned. But I think there's a lot of companies who, who, who can spend a lot of money. You know, you see these companies raising a billion dollars for like, you know, fintech and stuff. And it's like, well, it costs a billion dollars to go to the moon. <laughs> like what's <laughs> better for humanity um, or like, you know, so or solving solar better. If we put a billion dollars into, but then you have the problem of the, if the government does that, maybe it's not spent so efficiently. So it's like, you know, I think the system we have is, is, is better than any other. It's just not perfect. But those are the kinds of things that, as I think, as um, as a mature as an entrepreneur, I've started to think about. I, I actually have started to kind of think about entrepreneurs as almost the immune system for an economy. Yeah. Right. Like you get these big companies that grow and they become cancerous, and not because of one person, but because they just grow uncontrollably. And you need like like just like tumor, and, and you need um, entrepreneurs that come around to disrupt things to kind of shake things up and break things, those things up, especially if the government is going to step in and do it. Um, and and, and that, that's kind of the checks and balances. So I'm against any, reg, like any regulation really that makes it harder for entrepreneurs or small businesses to challenge because if they don't, who will, yeah. right? And I think that's what keeps it, that's what keeps like those big companies in check is the competition. And that, that was powerful. I'm admiring that view. That's actually, you know, I, I'd love to react to that, but you know, we're running out of time. So I still want to, still want to cover your sure. uh, status quo. So I, I hope maybe in the future we can have another one, you know, to, yeah. sure. Well, some, more, some more of that. Um, but you're, you're involved in, um, in some, some very interesting work with some very, very interesting people. Uh, and, and, and that is with your recent or latest company, QBio. Uh, and, um, you know, maybe kind of as an elevator pitch, you know, what is it that you guys are uh, trying to do there? Yeah, I think um, this has gotten a lot easier since COVID happened because the, I think our view is the following on, on, on the healthcare system, at least in the United States, but I think this generalizes, is any attempts to kind of automate kind of human, specifically doctors' decision-making right now is not the best use of, of resources simply because in there, because at a, from a, at a fundamental level, a doctor's time is the most scarce resource 
in healthcare. It's the most expensive. It's the most expensive to train, right? Like, and people are born faster than we create doctors. And so this idea that the key to better healthcare systems is doctors spending more time with each individual just does, actually doesn't really scale. Um, and so given that it's very difficult and we don't have generalized AI, and I don't think it's coming anytime soon. Like, I, I mean, there's like three groups in the world who are working on real AI. Everything else is machine learning or statistical algorithms. I don't care what anybody else says. Like neural networks are just fancy regression. Like, um, and, but I don't know that everybody sees it that way, but I think that's just true. Um, and, um, and so what we kind of said is, well, how do you help optimize a doctor's time better? And we imagined, you know, the, the way we think about how you triage a population and COVID again, provided a, a perfect example of the way we would think the right way to do it, which is you set up high throughput, low cost facilities. And in this case of COVID, you go somewhere, you drive through, they swab your nose and in 20 minutes, you're gone, you're out. You go home, if you hear from the doctor, they probably wanna to talk to you, you probably tested positive. If you didn't, you're fine, right? Obviously the doctor doesn't talk to everybody because they don't have time to talk to the people who are negative. It's just like, okay, well, we don't need to worry about you. Our perspective is that imagine if you could set up those kinds of low cost, high throughput sites that could non-invasively measure everything about a human body in 20 minutes. You know, blood, saliva, urine, whole body scan, vitals, 20 minutes flat, even faster maybe. Um, you go home and if you hear from your doctor, they wanna schedule a televisit with you because there's something that they, you know, maybe they wanna see you in person, maybe they want you to get some kind of more specific follow-up test. If you don't, you just assume you go back next year. Our perspective is that if you can do that, you can triage entire populations and flip the model of health primary care from being first come first serve, or if you can pay more, you can see a doctor sooner to more like a priority queue. So if you're for a CS person, it's like switching the model from a FIFO to a priority queue, where you can look at a large population and tell a set of doctors, hey, this is the group that you really need to see as soon as possible. And you should prioritize your time to see them sooner than this other group who's relatively low risk um, and, and maybe you know, don't need to be seen in person this year. And I think we believe that if you can do that at a population scale um, and really focus on, on these, looking at what's changing in an individual to understand their risks, specifically like the combination of their chemistry and their anatomy, and then weight those changes on a personalized way based on their genetic risks, lifestyle risks, medical history, you don't actually have to diagnose. You just have to understand who's at a higher risk and who should talk to a doctor. Um, and that would lead to giant gains of efficiency. So the, 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 what's holding this back um, in this for, to bring this realization to the, is um, a cheap, non-invasive, fast, reproducible way to measure the structure of our bodies. Now, typically this problem has fallen into the, into the regime of something called biomedical imaging, right? It's like, let's take pictures of your body. But that's not really what we're talking about. Um, you know, biomedical imaging is really optimized for acute or symptomatic diagnoses. Like a doctor has a hypothesis, they want to look inside of you and see if it's right. It's not about comparing you to the way you were before necessarily, or the way you're going to be in the future. It's not about understanding what's changing. So it doesn't have to be reproducible or quantitative, right? It's not really about measuring something. It's about the doctor being able to look inside of you without cutting you open. But if you're looking at from this from a primary care perspective or, or for a, from a wanting to monitor what's changing in an individual and understand how those changes impact their risks, Um, measuring like structure, like a scan that can produce a accurate three-dimensional model, both geometrically and in terms of the properties of biological tissue and how those are changing um, is much more useful for population triage. Now you could argue that could be used for like acute diagnosis too, but that's not specifically the problem that we're interested in solving. And so we developed a technology that would allow us to do this um, and a new kind of scanner um, that will complement things like cheap genetics, cheap chemistry, cheap vitals, cheap wearables, um, 
and to us solving this missing dimension, which is if you want to comprehensively understand what's changing in human body, you also need to know how somebody's anatomy is changing. And from a, with a background in physics, like the justification to me is really, if I'm measuring things about your chemistry, I'm really talking about measuring properties of our physiology at a uh, billionth or a millionth of a meter scale. Shorter time, right? Because like, genetics is about a billionth of a meter. Yeah. Um, cellular structure is about a, mil a millionth of a meter. So if I'm doing like white blood cell counts and things like that, um, microbiomics, you know, so that's similar. It. That's exactly but, what I was thinking. But, but, but anatomy, let me, let me, let me, let me, but anatomy is interesting at the scale of a thousandth of a meter. And so in most systems that we physically study and model as a physicist, you're look, you create these things of called multi-scale models of systems that you try to correlate at different lengths and time scales changes. So you can kind of understand the dynamics of a system. You do this in fluid dynamics, you do this in weather, right? Like, and like, and I think it makes a lot of sense just because the way the world is built, the world is built of lots of little things. So if we can measure rapid changes in little things, if those things are happening a lot, there could be correlated things happening at larger scales. Because it's absolutely true that if I can measure a change in your body at a millionth of a meter, um, at a thousandth of a meter, like a change in anatomy, lots of changes had to occur at smaller scales because we're made of cells and molecules. So if we can develop kind of fingerprints of disease based on what's changing an individual across multiple variables, I think we will be able to identify people who are on a trajectory to develop a disease much earlier and then intervene. Absolutely. And I, you know, I, 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 I mean, I talked with, uh, we talked a little bit with Michael about, about that, um, you know, that approach towards um, going away from treating to, towards preventing and, and identifying people. And when you talked about that, you know, you said like, you know, looking inside of people without actually, you know, what was it you said? Like without opening. Cutting them open. <laughs> yeah. Cutting them open. Exactly. I was just thinking because I remember, mm, uh, so in my undergraduate, we had a very strong nanotechnology uh, group and nanotechnology lab. And so that was kind of the first thing that I was thinking about, right, is what, what, what are the approaches from a nanotechnological perspective uh, towards that? And is, 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 that, is that at any point or did, did, did you guys? Look yeah, I mean, I think, I think the ultimate, honestly, I think the ultimate kind of, if you look at something like, the movie Elysium, where you have the scanner that diagnoses and treats kind of in real time. I think the ultimate, um, and there's a, there's a lot of problems to solve between there, but in a hundred years is it possible? Probably. I think the ultimate is going to be something to the effect of you have a scanner and you have in conjunction with nanotech that can communicate with the scanner. So you have, and I think about this akin to having this, the nanotech is soldiers on the ground and the scanner, the whole body scanner is more like the uh, satellite in the sky that's coordinating the attack. And I think, um, so you kind of have the micro and the macro scale and then the ability to act on a micro scale. Yeah. Um, and so I would imagine um, if you had those, if you can master those two technologies, I think the, this, this kind of idea that you have a, a scanner that can both diagnose and treat in, in very rapidly and close that loop I think that is the Star Trek device. Yeah. Obviously, there's a lot of problems to solve between here and there, but I think it, asymptotically, if you take technological progress out and like what would the ultimate kind of kind of scanner that can take care of our bodies in the future look like, the Star Trek scanner, I think that's what it looks like. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's super interesting. So, what well, you know, and obviously through COVID, I actually, so my, my hypothesis is actually that and I, I mean, it's, it's uh, it, for a lot of things. I mean, there's really obvious ones such as telemedicine, but, you know, through COVID, like things such as that, you know, and the awareness for that and the willingness, I guess, you know, ha has been accelerating like crazy, you know? So, I, and you already mentioned it as well, but like, how do you guys, you know, obviously you also realize that, but like, what's next for you guys in regards to that then? Um. So we're, we're super focused on polishing this, this new scanner okay. and, and, and gathering data and doing kind of with the, getting, going through the proper regulatory channels 
Um, and in parallel, we're, we're talking to a lot of partners who are, I think, see the power of, I think this platform that we're building is really about being able to apply the scientific method to the human body. And by that, I mean, I mean, that's the most fundamental, that's what it is. Like the scientific me method summarized in my mind is there's a system you want to study. I choose some property of the system that I want to measure at some frequency. I take some measurements, I observe. I build a model trying to predict the next measurement. If I'm right, I say, hey, maybe I have a theory or a model that describes the way the system behaves in certain states. If it doesn't work, I go back to drawing board, I gather more data, I try and fit it to a different model. It's, it's really this process of measuring change in forecasting that is at the heart of the scientific method. And until we have the ability to comprehensively measure what's changing in our body and collect that data so that, you know, I almost call it the, you know, the biology, like the digitization of biology, right? It's like the ultimate physical in my mind isn't about diagnosing, it's about converting analog to digital, like a human body from to digital information. Because if you can capture that, we know computation is, is getting so powerful and so cheap that it's just a matter of time before we develop models that can start to look at these patterns and forecast on trajectories, the same way we do with the weather right now. Um, the, but the thing that's missing, I don't think is, or the trend that I think is missing is not computational power. I think it's the, like the tool to measure the change. Like most, most revolutions in science occur or something in the natural world goes from an art to a science when we develop a tool that makes it commodity to measure the change in a system, like the telescope, the thermometer, all of these things revolutionized because first we had to take a bunch of measurements that fit them to a model. And then we could say, okay, we can describe the future of this system. And so the fundamental thing we're trying to do is say, how do you make it cheap enough, fast enough, non-base enough to basically start to approximate an analog to digital conversion for the human body? Yeah. I mean, uh, that, that is definitely a grand challenge. So let's, let, let, you know, how do you see this evolve in terms of the adaptability? And like you said, like partners, right? Well, how do you see the, 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 the scalability kind of, of that, you know? How do you integrate that into, a, into the existing ecosystem? Or, like, or how much are you dependent of, for example, the status quo uh, of, the, of the healthcare system as well, right? And the healthcare system also adapting to things such as that. Well, I think it's, it's, I think it has applications. Like I said, this is a, um, all over the place. Like I think it's very potentially useful for clinical trials for understanding how not only the positive impacts a drug has, but if you want to understand the other impacts it has. I think it's very good for monitoring intervention, right? It's not just about being able to detect disease, but like if I'm a doctor and I take an action, I want to know that the action I took, what effects it had, not just on the biomarker I'm trying to change, but maybe that didn't have any negative effects on other biomarkers, right? Um, I think, again, for primary care, I think the thing is triage. I think being able to say, how do you prioritize your time as a doctor? Can a doctor care for 10 times as many people if you can automatically sift through and prioritize the order in which they see them, right? Without burning out. Um, so I think as far as scalability, like our initial goal was the reason we wanted to get this to a 15 minute whole body scan is that we believe that per site at a like, and we can set these things up for, much lower cost than most people anticipate without any modifications to existing infrastructure that we can put through 10,000 people per year per site. Mm -hmm. And just to give you a sense, like that's like around what like a car wash does, but cheap, much cheaper than a car wash. Um, and so if you think about how it scales, like the reason we had those specific price targets, and I think we can actually do more with, as we, this technology matures, um, that's how it scales. It's like low, like low cost, low footprint, high throughput centers where people can walk in and, you know, in a largely automated fashion, get everything about their body measured. Um, you know, it's summarized. This most important changes are summarized for a doctor. The doctor can just quickly decide whether or not they need to have a follow-up televisit with this person or where they should refer to a specialist whether I say, just send the person notification saying to schedule your physical exam for next year, right? And I think, um, I think that's how it scales. The same way COVID 
triage skills. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Jeff, that was absolutely amazing. We ran out of time. I already overtook five minutes, you know, but this was really, really great having in the show. I, I really enjoyed our conversation. I hope we can, you know, take it further. It was, it was fun to uh, reminisce. I haven't, uh, I haven't talked about some of this stuff in a while, so it was fun. I appreciate it. I'd love to come back. Thank you.